Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Byrne, Happy New Year, my friend. Well, Happy New Year indeed. This is the beginning of Season 3 of the Playground Podcast. Yay! And I'm Chris Byrne with Richard Gottlieb, and we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy, and marketing and media company, Chizcom. And we are so excited to start out the new year. Everybody's hopeful that this new year is going to be great and better. And we've got a great guy to talk to today, a guy by the name of Shane Krangle, who is the founder and head of Margle Media, which is a digital growth agency based out of, of all places, well, not of all places, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I met Shane when we worked together a couple of years ago on a project that turned into a disaster. And, but... Shane and his team were so brilliant. I thought, I've got to know these guys. I've been getting to know them. What they do is amazing. And we're going to be talking about digital strategy. And I can't think of a better topic to start out the year with than that. So after that, Shane, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Hey, thank you, gentlemen, for having me on. And I'll I'll add, uh, what we did together was not a disaster. The the collected group of people we were working with was a disaster. (laughs) Right, right. You know, you're brought into a company to say, hey, let's get this company in order. Let's do a process. Let's do a procedure. And then they go, that's great. And then 10 minutes later, they go, now we want to do something else. And you go, boing, boing. That's your head hitting the desk. So in any event, why don't you start out telling us a little bit about what you guys do, how you got where you are, because this is an impressive story. Uh, again, thanks for having me on. And you guys have uh, an incredible reputation that I'm now learning ha- as I've uh, expanded my reach and knowledge of the toy industry. And thank you guys for really being pioneers and, and again, having me on. And on my side, I probably have a very uh, strange story for most in the marketing world. I previously served uh, eight years in the Marine Corps. I enlisted in 2003 Went into the infantry, felt compelled right after 9-11. And uh, my second enlistment, I planned on doing 20 years. And my second enlistment was on recruiting duty. And I actually got recruiter of the year for the Marines in 2009. And I learned that you can make a lot of money in sales outside of the Marine Corps. So <laughs> that that uh, that led me to, to leave in 2012. And Uh, At that time, I taught myself and was teaching courses on social media, how to leverage it, and uh, really was just a a self-taught digital marketing guy, heavy on social. And that led up to a chance encounter with uh, actually a videographer friend of mine who had recorded uh, some, some videos for me for a sales course I was teaching. And he reached out to me. His name is Luke Marlowe. And uh, he reached out to me in January of 2017 and was selling uh, a lot of different videos to publishers at that time. Video was super, super popular on Facebook. Uh, We call it snack size content, that 30 to 60 second style content. And he reached out to me and was like, hey man, I'm really good at creative. I know you're really good at sales. I'd love for you to check out what we're doing. Long story short, I saw a massive opportunity for providing and creating uh, video content for publishers on social media for all different verticals and styles of business from mom pages to pet pages to toy pages to you name it. And we just built a really good system of curating content and then selling it. Fast forward from that, we raised a bunch of money 
uh, built out a company, and that's when we were, we were lucky enough to get introduced to you, Chris. And something happened pretty tragically in the middle of that. Facebook shut down its algorithm, and we had to pivot pretty hard in uh, January of 2018. Uh, up until that point, we were one of the largest video providers on social media, doing around 2,000 to 3,000 videos a month and around 3 billion views a month organically. And I think what was important there is we were pretty naive to what we were doing and how big it was. We were just having a lot of fun and we were creating content. And when Facebook changed its algorithm, we realized we had a lot of knowledge on uh, building content that people want to engage with. And we said, why don't we become a digital marketing agency and help people on social media brand and build awareness and sell their products or services. And that's what turned us into what we are today. Uh, We're in Milwaukee. We got 25 full-time employees here, proud to say. Uh, We made it through this pandemic. We're growing. And uh, I I will say that I biasly believe we're one of the best at what we do. And I'm really proud of what we do. Two things. One, you talk about Facebook changing the uh, algorithm. So for people who don't or are not familiar, maybe you could tell us what that meant. And then secondly, if you're making 4,000 videos a month, that's almost 50,000 a year. So can you describe you know, what kind of videos these are? First off, the, the content that we were making was actually curated content. So we would find unique stories. Here's a good example. Yeah, you and Chris Richard own a, uh, a publishing toy channel, right? And you've got a million followers on Facebook that follow what you guys just posting uh, information on toys. Well, we go find stories that people are posting out there in the, in the internet, and we would take those stories, get legal permission to use them, and then chop them into 30 to 60 second segments, brand them for your page, and then we would sell them to you, and you would now have video. And video was so important then because you could share it. Shares brought new followers, And in between those videos, you would post articles. Those articles would take you off of Facebook to a website where you got paid on impressions because you have banner ads running. So it's actually a pretty easy system once you understand it of just, we literally had about 20 people all day. Their only job was being on the computer, their computers and searching for stories in the verticals of publishers we represented. To go to the video side on the algorithm, the algorithm uh, is always changing. So I look at key uh, platforms right now for growth. Uh, LinkedIn is, become, is a wide open algorithm of a platform. Uh, TikTok is a wide open algorithm uh, of a platform. And the reason being is, as we know, once these social platforms mature with users and they get influencers and followers, uh, those companies, then Facebook, which also owns Instagram and Snapchat, you name it, they then make you pay to play. So in the beginning, they want people to post as much video content as possible to grow their their channels organically. And then at some point, to prove a point, in the summer of 2017, we were averaging like 1.2 to 2 million views of video organically on a publisher page that had 2 million followers or more. By January of 2018, that dropped down to about 50 to 100,000 per video. And that was simply by Facebook saying, hey, we're done uh, allowing this awesome reach for free. 
And now if you want to grow, you're going to have to put money in. And that really killed a lot of publishers and a lot of companies because it's not easy to grow any type of company or platform or voice, much less having to pay for it. Digital marketing, of course, as I mentioned at the beginning, is a is a huge topic for the toy industry right now. And sure. what what are you seeing out there today? We know what what happened, and it's a little it's been a little bit of the wild west, and a lot of people don't really understand the language of it. I mean, we've gone from people saying I have X million views, and then it stops. And sure. one of the things that you guys do so well is you go from views to engagement, from engagement to advocacy, and from advocacy to purchasing something. Uh, so, yeah. so, so talk a little bit about your strategies and how, how you approach things today. No, that, that, that makes sense. One, you're talking vanity metrics, which I think a lot of companies are enamored with and they mean absolutely nothing. Uh, and you can't almost blame uh, these key people that work on the marketing teams for certain companies, a lot of them come from strong traditional backgrounds. I don't blame them. Broadcast, radio, print, those are the, the mediums that, that thrive for decades. And you know something I notice when people get really excited about, let's say, likes or views is um, a lot of people are afraid to push into an area they don't have any experience in themselves. And the companies that are winning are the companies that have leadership that are acknowledging, hey, it's okay if we don't know this, we want to learn it, we want to become good at it, and we understand that it's not just good enough to get views, do those views translate into an actual ROI, which is a purchase, right? And I, I think it would help to also understand that we as a company stopped uh, making those videos you know, three and a half years ago, three years ago. What we are now is we develop a strategy for our clients that is strictly digital and social driven. So we take, if it's a product that you're selling, i.e. a game, we're gonna do all of the analysis on what people are saying online about that type of product if you have a competitor. Uh, the goods, the bads, what are the KPIs that matter most? What's Build a KPI? What's a KPI? So for the, key, for the key value proposition for the company and, it's, and it, what it wants to sell the most, meaning, some people, their KPI would be, we just want strong brand awareness, but we don't care about actual purchase, right? And for other companies, their KPI would actually be a legitimate sale. So there's a blend in there all the way across in those key performance indicators that you'll notice bigger companies, Richard, they carry a lot more about brand awareness because they already have a solid footprint. And a lot smaller companies that are bringing out toys and games they have to survive on sales, so they have to be a lot more strategic with those ad spend dollars in the beginning. That's the blend, though, across for everyone. So, you know, no, building that strategy, creating the content then off of that strategy, deploying it on social and digital, and then managing the ad spend dollars. That is what we do. And that ecosystem is all tied together with the smaller things, SEO, SEM, which isn't small, but it's a part of that glue, email marketing, influencer marketing, all of those things develop a very strong digital campaign. I think right now is such a cool time for the companies that aren't willing to risk. It's not a risk. I think it's a great time for those companies that are uh, finally ready to do the right thing. And that fear for most of those companies is shifting their ad spend dollars, their media buying dollars 
from traditional to digital. That's it. We've talked a lot to toy companies, and there is a growing realization that they cannot rely only on traditional, which is TV advertising for them in the past. But, And you also mentioned the whole idea of vanity media, which is sort of where the transition began. But now we're seeing executives and managers who are much more data-driven. And the question that I've had and that you've been able to answer for me is, how do I know it's working? And I'd love you to talk a little bit about that because that's just been something that's inspired me as we've talked in the past. One thing that I love for what I do and you know, other companies that work in the digital space as an agency do is we're held to metrics that are black and white. We have real numbers that we, that we represent and show. And if you talk to anyone that really wants to talk openly about traditional marketing, and shifting at least a little bit to, to digital, it's it's that the numbers on traditional aren't always verified. You know, you're you're going off of Gantt charts that are hopefully nailing the right demographics and showing you that th- people are watching for this amount of time, but there's no actual valid proof. I tell you what I can do. I can show you when somebody clicks on an ad though off of social media and goes through and tracked with a pixel and buys from your website, a toy, I can show you how much that average order value is. I can show you how much your lifetime value is. And if that you upsell them over the course of the year, and what are they really worth long-term? And from all that data, what you said is everything that you can do with the data serves a much greater purpose, not only for making sales, but for really understanding who your customer is. And the one thing I always say to our team is, I don't care how good something looks or how pretty something looks, does it convert? And I think that's something that's missed so much is like, are we creating things and marketing our products or services and actually getting a return on them? And if not, what is the data showing and how do we create content that drives sales off of what the data is showing. I think it's still hilarious that we're in 2021 and we're still sitting here trying to talk to people and convince them that digital and social might be a smart move for their ad spend budget in 2021. I, to me, it's that's crazy. With with television a- advertising, the financial hurdle was, was quite high. It was typically seven digits. That was the word. Spend seven digits to at least minimally have an impact. So the hurdle for this type of promotion, I'm assuming, is more flexible and is more obtainable for more people. Is that is that correct? I think you nail one of the most exciting secrets of what is happening right now. It's a secret. It's a secret. (laughs) And we'll get to that. (laughs) I think you nailed it, though. Here, here's what's so great about now. I like, I literally just got off with a guy who started a, a product for babies, a small toy for babies. And uh, nine months ago with his wife, they started out of Florida without knowing anything that they're doing on social media, ran ads, and they've done over a million dollars in profit in the last nine months. So now is that an outlier? Yeah. You know, of course, like not everybody that launches a toy or a game or a product or any product is going to win if they don't do the right principles or have 
honestly, sometimes what they're selling also doesn't, you know, people just don't want, uh, that's a hard pill to swallow, but it, it's, it's one of those things. I think that greatest advantage is that the barrier of entry into digital marketing and social media marketing is still so low because these big dogs like Coca-Cola, you name it, even they haven't offloaded their spend dollars onto social like they should. And I promise to God they're going to. And when they do, those CPMs and costs for impressions are going to go through the roof. But we still have this golden age of you can create a product, a toy, a game. You can do the, make some very simple, effective, pinpointed uh, ad creative. And you can launch a company right now. And you can get uh, sales moving immediately. That's the low end, Richard. These companies that are stable have been around for a while. They are in such a good spot because all they have to do is focus a little bit more of their attention and the great thing, again, is once you taste that ROI of a real tangible metric, not something that's just like, again, pie in the sky, we think this is how many people are converting because of this. When you can actually see it, there's no limit to the scaling you can do and the creativity you can bring uh, to market it. Shane, you mentioned a word that I think is really important for people to hear, which is scalable. And that that's something that I think people need to know. And you've also talked about the need to invest. So can you talk a little bit about how one gets into this and really what they need to put behind a product to make it effective? One of the best things that I've had the privilege of doing is watching countless uh, companies launch products for the first time on e-com, uh, direct-to-consumer platforms, right, and initiatives. And in that, one of the biggest mistakes I see people make when launching a game, a product, a toy, you name it, is that let's say they have a million dollars, Chris, for the sake of easy math. They have a million dollars. They'll spend 950000 of that research and development and product development. And they come in uh, to our office or they call and they say, hey, I need to make back all my money. I have $50,000 now to launch my product nationally, and I need you to make me 1.5 million back so I can place more orders for inventory. And the reality is whatever you're spending on product development, uh, research and development, you want to have about, uh, I always say, one, whatever you're spending, have the same amount for marketing, taking your, mar your, your product to market. And uh, a lot of people don't do so, that. I want to hear you. So you're saying whatever you're spending in totality on bringing the product to market? Is that what you're saying you should be spending on marketing? I am. Okay. Well, it's really become a little bit like the movie business. I've been saying this for a couple of years now, which is the movies spend almost as much to market the titles as they spend to produce them. And I think in this market, when you have to find an audience, when you have to attract them and engage them, you really need to be thinking in that way. And so often, Marketing is the first thing that people cut, and then they, they put something on the shelf, they cut the marketing, and they go, why didn't it sell? Because no one knew about it, you moron. <laughs> or that, that or they take shortcuts on the key areas, meaning when you get a website built, build it right the first time, don't be cheap. I think that's probably one of the top things that I find is uh, they come in and they try to have somebody do it for $5,000, let's say. And then they come back a year later and they rebuild it for 10,000. 
And then finally, with no sales and a low conversion rate on the website, they come to someone and say, okay, I'm willing to do it right. So if I can give one piece of advice, build your website. That is your store. If you are attracting people digitally into your storefront, what would you want it to look like when they came in? And if it looks bad, would you expect somebody to buy? So once you get your storefront, then you want to move into your content, your ad creative, what types of content you're going to be creating to run ads, and then managing those ad spend dollars to drive people to your store to purchase. Uh, on a, a very simplistic way, if you can do that, can you just give us some idea of the difference between, a say, um, a marketing campaign for a toy company that makes toys and a marketing campaign for a retailer. What are some of the differences? Uh, I mean, you mentioned if you have a storefront, so maybe the toy company doesn't have a storefront or they're dependent upon selling through other storefronts. I mean, so can you, can, are there some differences you can lay out for us? Yeah, well, I, I got a real life example. Um, we've been fortunate enough to uh, work with Lisa uh, and her team at Play Monster, the VP of marketing and, we launched a campaign for their product uh, called uh, Break-In, and that's for Alcatraz, Break-In Alcatraz. And something that was really cool about them is they really trusted us, one. They had, they had traditionally only marketed their toys through traditional means, meaning you know 30-second, 15-second spots on, on TV, the normal stuff out there. And they gave us the opportunity to create a strategy and then do an all digital. So we tar- we created the content and targeted people of the personas in the, in the demographic of buyer that we knew would buy their game. We targeted them on social media and then we drove them to in-store purchase at Walmart and Target. And we only had a 30-day window to nail uh, a pretty hefty in-store purchase per week goal and not only did we hit it, uh, we actually tripled it. And, uh, you know, they, those stores continued on into the holiday season. And um, now they're, they're, they're expanding upon the break-in game. And to really go back to how is it possible if you're a, a toy company and you're retailing, mostly most, most of your revenue is generated from retailers carrying your product, you can win by marketing on digital driving people to in-store and knowing that that attribution is there. The only problem with that, Richard, is I can't track if somebody buys necessarily in a checkout line at the store and it came from an ad. But if you've never marketed this product, sales are going through the roof. They're coming to buy it for some reason, right? And so that's something I want to touch on, at least from a digital to in-store perspective. It strikes me that television was really uh, one giant marketing environment. But when we have Netflix and Prime, uh, there's no advertising. It's, it's a membership. Uh, and so suddenly, this vast uh, form of marketing is getting narrower and narrower. It's, it's not just that the internet is an alternative. It seems to me that that, that kind of broadcasting advertising is not as lucrative as it once was, was because the, the, the consumers aren't, aren't there. 
I would agree with that. And depending on the age demographic, Richard, of who you're talking to, my form of TV besides watching sports, it, if you really think about it, I consume the most video content on YouTube, right? That To me, I'm searching uh, for that content. When I'm on Netflix and let's say Amazon Prime shows, yeah, you're you're there just to get those shows and that's it. You're not real. You're not there for that commercial because they don't have any. I would only say OTT and streaming services. There's a time and place. I'll also add on those platforms. I just record those and I fast forward through the commercials now. So, you know, and I think a lot of people do. You record your show, commercial hits. Uh, now, does that mean it doesn't work? No. Like with somebody who's maybe older and not, and they're used to that way of digesting content, still watch commercial commercials and whatnot. If it's live, yes. But I look at like, if you're looking from a video watching shows perspective, like pre-roll is massive, but it's a massive on YouTube and it's massive on these other video outlets uh, that people are searching directly for the kind of content they want to consume. You mentioned a topic like pre-roll, which is, which is an option for people. There's also mid-roll. What are the options on YouTube? And if I can quit after four seconds and it says, skip this ad, is it still effective? I will say marketing is only as effective as the company that's creating the content. So, you know, if you really know uh, what people, how people engage, number one, all right, this is great, ready? So when we made all those videos before we were a marketing agency and we we're a content creation company, there's a bunch of things. And remember, we have billions and billions and billions of organic views, right? Here's, here's something to remember. One, uh, over 90% of those videos were watched without sound. Yet, all these companies create ads and stories and videos with no captions or subtitles, or right? And they have the, the videos move to music and nobody's hearing the music. So number one, keep that into account. Second, when you are advertising and need to catch attention, whatever the hero sequence is, that's what you play in your first three seconds. A lot of times commercials build into a moment. They have their hero moment and then it goes away and there's a call to action. You need to take that moment, put it in your first three seconds and then tell the story. It's all about getting someone to be interested. How can you expect someone to be interested after three seconds if, they, if there's nothing to entice them to learn more, right? So when you talk about pre-roll, not only is pre-roll critical if you're selling a game or a toy, because how? what are the biggest channels on YouTube? Unboxing, unpackaging toys. <laughs> Crazy. No, they are. They're, they're massive. So if you, you can literally target those videos with your ad, because now you know you're targeting people that are interested in these types of interests, right? And have the right content in the beginning with the the big message in the front to entice them to watch the rest of the ad. And you can make it in a way where they get what's being told with no sound on because they're watching it on the toilet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like wherever they're consuming their content, they're in a subway, they're in a car. If you can do that effectively or in the mid roll and mid roll is you're what everybody hates it, Richard, you're watching a great movie or you're watching a great video and all of a sudden it cuts to an ad. Uh, the same principles apply there, though. Capture the moment in the first three seconds. 
Then you tell the rest of the story. And, and if I can add this, make it 15 seconds or less. Uh, the attention span of people we already know is insanely low, but all you need are a couple seconds to capture that data and you can then retarget those people with ads elsewhere. And when we're talking about kids and we're talking about kids watching YouTube, which is their go-to destination these days, on YouTube, you can't really advertise to kids based on their IP address, but you can do contextual ads. So I could do, I have an animated series that a kid likes rainbow corns, for example, and I know that that demographic is largely girls, so I could advertise a doll to that to that demographic. How do you counsel your clients to work around that to make the most of those targeted ad buys? That's a great point, and I really think it comes back to you got to push on two different. You're pushing on two different people here. You're making different ad creative for them, the child, the the person that wants the product. And then you're targeting the parents with completely different messaging and ad creative for why they will want to buy it for their child. The goal is you target both so they meet in the middle, right? Kids come into parent off of watching something that's very generic and demographically just very open, but they're, they're learning more. And then on the parent side, you can be extremely targeted and you want them to come both knowing that they, the child asks the parent to buy it and the parent talks to the child about it, right? And if the parent has already seen it, they trust it. There's a lot of uh, uh, psychological context to this as well. But from a, from a YouTube standpoint, it really is on making your awareness well-known and then on the key decision makers or buyers doing a more targeted approach in your messaging and ad creative. You mentioned a, a concept called retargeting, which is something you and I discussed uh, a couple of years ago. You first introduced me to it, in fact. Talk a little bit about how you gather information in order to retarget somebody and how that plays into the process of somebody going from awareness to hopefully purchase. That's great. And to anyone listening to this, I think, ironically, I mean, it sound, for some people it might sound... Uh, very basic, but it's overlooked. There's nothing more important than bu building out your email list, number one. Um, and something that doesn't get done, which again is surprising, is a good email rate open percentage would be uh, 15 to 20%, right? That's pretty solid. Now, we always say emails are actually 100% open rate because whoever doesn't open the email you're able to upload that to social and retarget those people with ads in their newsfeed with content that already talks to them as a loyal buyer. So I want you to think of that. Like if you have 10,000 emails, you should be able to get 10,000 views on your offer. Now you're going to pay for it because you're running an email sequence or you're running ads, which has spend behind it to push it to the person you want to see it. But again, collecting data, 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 data is everything. Now, if you don't have an email list, one of the greatest things ever invented, which actually has some scrutiny right now uh, in legal proceedings is uh, data collection and that's called uh, pixel tracking. So right now, Chris, you go to uh, your favorite uh, toy company, assuming that they are uh, set up with the proper marketing 
best practice tactics. And when you go to their website, you're going to trigger something called this pixel. This pixel stand sits on every page that it, that is worthy of it. And it basically tracks your movement if you come from an ad off of social media. So you click on an ad on Facebook, it takes you to the website, and at every step along the way, we're able to gather that information and then re-upload it to Facebook and then hit you with a new ad based off of how, how far you got in that purchasing, you could say funnel. So some people just land on the homepage and they bounce off within two seconds. You know, I'm not gonna spend a lot of money retargeting these people with ads. Where I will is if somebody adds a product to their cart, which a lot of people do, and that's called an abandoned cart sequence. Some people right now are very concerned about this data. And I I, I don't know where that's gonna go. I, I don't see it changing much because it's such a big monster right now. It's just, it's kind of moving and will continue to move. Here's what I know. I surveyed um, about 50 different people under the age of 40, almost 80% said that they would rat, they would prefer to be targeted by ads than not. And I think here's why. If I am following a product or service online or I follow a company, I want to get offers directed towards me. And I think it might be a generational thing. There's definitely a play there. I think at the end of the day, though, we're moving towards uh, an economy of people that want to get marketing for the things they want, assuming they can get a deal on it. TikTok was recently in the news quite a bit. Uh, the Trump administration uh, threatened to shut it down. And um, there was, uh, as, as part of the ongoing negotiations, Walmart wanted to um, not take a majority stake, but, but take a substantial stake in the company. Can you explain to people why I, Walmart would want to own a piece of TikTok? It's kind of a continuation of this entire discussion, which is uh, people, people fail to look at these companies for what they really are, and that's their data. Everything is data-driven. He who has the data makes the rules. You look at companies like Equifax and these credit card companies, did you know that they make only about 17% of their billions annually on the service fee they charge you to get your credit score? They make all the rest of their money on what? Data. Third-party outsourcing of your data. So when you look at Walmart, why would Walmart want a piece of TikTok? One, they're getting a look into all of the data on the, the, the newest generation coming forward, right? Secondly, uh, they have a massive stake in products and or services that they could target on those platforms and drive an immense amount of sales. I'm, I'm actually glad Walmart didn't get a piece of it because just like right now, if you try to promote on Amazon, they keep that data and they don't share it with you. Toy company out there, when they're doing these, you know, when they're working with the Targets and Walmarts and you name it, the Myers all the way across, they don't share that info back. You can't use that data to help your own company. I, I am glad it didn't happen because Walmart would have had a monopoly on the fastest growing platform uh, for social. And uh, I'll add something to TikTok. TikTok is an amazing spot now. They absolutely canceled all their minimum ad spend requirements per month. 
They have a, a decent ad account on the back end to track everything that's happening. And uh, I think it's a phenomenal spot to market if you have the right product right now. So obviously we've been in a, in a very changeable dynamic world. A lot of companies are struggling to market and they're struggling. They struggled to market during COVID. They're going to be struggling to market as we come out of COVID. What advice would you give them? How would you guide them into this digital world? All right. This is going to be aggressive, but it's two words. All right. You ready? Yeah. Lean forward. <laughs> Look historically at any downturn or swing in the economy. There are a couple people and businesses in each vertical of business that come out that are brand new that nobody's ever heard of because they had what it took. They sat down and said, well, everybody's holding on to our money and retreating. We're going to lean forward because it's the cheapest it's ever been to market our product or service right now. Those principles apply right now. And I think this might be the most important thing people hear today. Your competition is holding on to their money because they're holding on to their money. It is cheaper to market your product or service across digital, which means that you can get a land grab and you can lean forward and you can take advantage of this moment. So I would encourage people to realize that we're on a, I already believe we're on the, the swing back to normalcy. It's going to take a while, but we all know that during co during any downturn, Chris and Richard, the first thing, first two things to go for a company is marketing and sales. Right. And the first thing that they try to bring back on the swing out is marketing and sales. And so I think right now is a, is a great time for people to, to not be afraid, understand the moment and that there's a great opportunity because the competition is holding their money and if you have the capacity and ability, now is the time to lean forward and, and capture that market share. So I'm going to ask you the question that we, we've been asking everybody, and uh, we'd like you to tell us a secret. I kind of want to leave a secret of, of hope, and it's just something I've observed as I built my company even, and I think this principle applies to anyone. Don't overthink it. If you have a good product, you will win if you have the right marketing practices in place. If you have something that people want, they will find a way to get it. So don't overthink a good product. Take that risk. Take that chance. Secondly, stay a little naive. Um, I'm sure all of us can agree that as you get older or you've done something for a long time, you stop doing the things that made you win in the beginning because you, you think they won't work anymore, and that's false. And I think it's important that, especially what we're going through with the pandemic, that we, uh, we as a society and we as industry leaders um, remember those things that got us to where we were pre-COVID and that the better days are ahead. And uh, if you look at all the data out there, my secret is the data points towards massive regrowth when using your money in the right areas and uh, people out there want to consume right now. So give them what they want and lean forward. Shane, as always, it is so inspiring to speak with you. I, I love that. I love that we get to share your enthusiasm and your insight and knowledge with our listeners. People, you can check out this amazing company at Margle, M-A-R-G-L-E, media.com. And Shane, all best for the new year for you, and thank you for spending the time with us. You too, gentlemen, and you guys have an amazing reputation, as I said, and it really was an honor to be on here, and best of luck in 2021 for you too as well. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. 
And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about some ideas that are top of mind, top of the toy industry right now. And here in the new year, there's been a lot of buzz about an interview that Richard Dixon did with Women's Wear Daily. You can see links to it on Richard's site, Global Toy News. And it's pretty interesting about forward-looking nature of the toy industry and lifestyle brands. Richard, what are you thinking about that? Well, first of all, I was I was taken with the notion of reading uh, an interview with an, any toy industry professional from the perspective of of a magazine like uh, Women's Wear Daily because it's it's so it's it's a wonderful way to see what kind of questions somebody uh, who's not in the industry would ask and how they see the influence of. Fashion dolls, and Barbie in particular, has on the uh, the fashion industry and vice versa. But I was really struck uh, by a couple of things in this article, Chris. And uh, I think that really goes back to Mattel's attempt to, uh, and I think it's a good attempt to be extremely relevant to not just children, but to adults and particularly young adults uh, at this time. And uh, Richard spends some time on Mattel Creations. This is a, a uh, program they have at Mattel in which uh, they let a lot of independent artists and creators and designers come up with non-traditional styling for their products. And in particular, in this case, uh, they're working with uh, companies that I, I have to admit it, or street styles that I'm not familiar with, companies called The Hundreds, and Herschel, and there were other companies mentioned, and that they're doing limited editions with with these companies. And I think the idea here is to make Barbie relevant so that when uh, a little girl grows up to be an adult parent, Barbie is not a, a memory, it's not nostalgia, it's a very dynamic lifestyle brand for that parent. I think that's very true, and I think it speaks to the role of toys as a lifetime experience in our culture right now. I I always laugh because I think about the collecting of Staffordshire pottery in the beginning of the 19th century, or my mother with her Hummel figures, or things like that. And it was something that they collected and that they sat on a shelf and made them feel good, and Barbie has taken on that role, the Barbie collector. And I think that they've done a great job in terms of keeping that connection with our childhood, our imaginations, and the ways in which we want to interact with toys as art and not necessarily just as playthings. I personally, and I've written this, that I felt that Barbie struggled in part because uh, Mattel did not maintain a relationship after the child became a teen so that when the child became a parent she didn't necessarily have good uh, attitudes towards the brand and so i think this is much needed i think it's something that should be emulated by other companies uh, because as you said um, toys are, are such an important part of life uh, but in this case the very brands the styling the look uh, these are all things that uh, people want to maintain a relationship with. Just think about anime from Japan, which people of all ages embrace. So I, I, I'm very impressed with Mattel doing that. I, I think it's really uh, moving beyond their traditional uh, kind of mindset as a company. 
And then I was also struck in the article, um, and I'm going to read this quote uh, from Richard Dixon, which is, we need to create content for YouTube, short form, long form, TV commercials, TV series, digital gaming. It's really complex today. For a company that was built on the 30-second commercial and Saturday morning cartoons, the whole model is completely new. And uh, Chris, I, I think that really speaks to the mosaic that is the modern marketing plan in which uh, you used to be able to just throw a bunch of money at one format. Right, and, right. and now it's, it's just a, it's, it's a lot of little fragments of marketing that come together to create a whole. I think that's exactly the point. And I think that what toy companies can learn from what Mattel is doing over and above the lifetime value of play, I think what they can learn is, our audience is moving all the time and they are choosing what to consume in terms of media when. There is no captive audience as there was from the, the late 50s right through the through the 80s. Children are their own programmers. They are choosing how to consume. They are engaging in brands in different ways. And whereas Ruth Handler never wanted Barbie to have a story because she wanted girls uh, then she wanted the girls to be able to project onto that doll their own stories. Now the stories are a way that kids become immersed in a brand, and it's a way that guides their interaction. And a lot of the stuff that comes out of the that kind of play is a sense of self, is a sense of empowerment, is all of the things that Barbie has always stood for, but now it's just delivered in a way that reflects contemporary media. Well, all of this, uh, Chris, beyond what we can learn from this article, and by the way, it's a very long article. Uh, I, I recommend people read it and uh, take some time with it because there's, there's a lot there. Uh, but, but overall, it, it makes me feel good about the toy industry, and it makes me feel good about Mattel uh, and that they're getting their mojo back. And I love the fact that they are really confronting this dynamic market head on. And I think that's the thing that people have to do. And I think at all points within our industry, whether it's buyers or designers or marketers, we have to figure out where the consumer is and go chase them and engage them and realize that not every consumer is going to want every brand, but those who are going to be loyal, we want to make sure we create an experience that keeps them engaged over the long term. And that could be a lifetime. And the good news is that we get to keep playing and we're glad that you're playing with us. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host, Richard Gottlieb, and we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. And we will see you next time.